Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. I almost flunked middle school art class. Uh, I have never been, well, I've been artistically challenged most of my life, but it really became apparent in the seventh grade when we did a unit on pottery. Uh, us kids, we were, we were taught how to make pots. I think they called them pinch pots back then because you started with the lump of clay and you pinched a hole in the middle with your thumbs and then you made the hole bigger and bigger, wider until it became a little pot. Simple, unless you were me. Okay, so the part that, that I really messed up, our teacher warned us repeatedly that we had to get all the air pockets out of our clay before we began. You know, so squeeze it, make sure there's no air pockets because if you put a piece of clay into a kiln and you bake it at 2,000 degrees, what happens to your little pinch pot if you got, got air pockets in it? Yeah, kaboom. Well, my pinch pot kaboomed. And, and that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was that my pinch pot took out several other pinch pots <laughs> that had been made by artistically talented seventh graders. All right. And so my teacher, initially, she was sure that I had done it on purpose just to see the explosion. And I managed to convince her that, no, I was merely incompetent, which she could see from the rest of my artwork. So she didn't flunk me. Now, welcome to week two of a four-part series in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And today we're going to follow this Old Testament prophet as he heads off to a pottery workshop. A pottery workshop. God wanted Jeremiah to teach people an important truth uh, by using a potter and his lump of clay to illustrate that truth. So I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 18, okay? Longest book in the Bible, so you shouldn't have any trouble finding it in your Bible, Jeremiah 18. There's an outline in your program. I encourage you to fill that out as we, we go along so that you could be alert to whatever God wants to say to you over the course of the next uh, bit of time together. So as you're looking for Jeremiah 18, let me just remind you that one of the reasons we're doing this four-week Bible-savvy Jeremiah series is because we want to whet your appetite to become a daily reader of God's Word. At Christ Community, we've put together a Bible reading schedule that will take you through the entire Scripture over four years, reading like 10 or 15 minutes a day. And so if you've, if you've not started reading yet, uh, we encourage you to jump in. You're going to jump into Jeremiah. That's where the schedule has us right now. So we're doing this series to uh, give you an understanding of this book so as you read it, you can make application to your own life. If you don't have a Bible Savvy schedule yet, uh, you can get one at Resource, our bookshop at each of our campuses, in a hard copy form, spiral bound notebook, or just uh, download our CCC app and you could find it there as well. One other side note here. Uh, if you've been at Christ Community for any length of time, you know that we typically do weekend sermons in series, four or five week series. And so every series builds on what has been taught in previous weeks. Now that means that if you, if you miss a week of church because you're, you're sick or you're out of town or you're celebrating your Aunt Edna's 100th birthday, uh, you know, you could miss a really important part of the series. It'd be like reading a John Grisham novel and just, you know, skipping 50 pages in the middle of the book. Or going to a movie and stepping out of the movie uh, in the middle of the movie for 20 minutes and then coming back and trying to make sense of everything. 
Okay, so, so when you miss, what we encourage you to do around here is go online and watch the sermon you missed. For example, last weekend, we began this Jeremiah series. So if you missed that sermon, you missed a lot of background about Jeremiah the prophet and his ministry and stuff that will help you make sense of this book as you read it and apply it to your life. We covered a really important topic last week as well. So if you missed it, no big deal. If you can go online and you look it up, and watch it, and if you missed it as a family, watch it together as a family. Okay, today's passage, Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah goes to a pottery workshop. Uh, he's about to teach his, his audience an important truth about God with the help of a potter and his clay. Uh, Jeremiah loved to use visual aids as a teaching tool. Uh, sometimes these visual aids took the form of drama. He liked to act things out. Uh, so, for example... Uh, on one occasion, and you may have read this this past week if you're following the Bible Savvy schedule, uh, he held up two baskets of figs to his audience. Now, one basket of figs, the figs were ripe and juicy, and the other basket of figs, uh, they were rotten. And so what's he trying to illustrate? Well, he's saying to the people, this is what our spiritual lives are like. You know, some of us, our relationship with God, it's ripe, it's juicy, it's good, it's vibrant. Others of us, our relationship with God, it stinks, it's rotten, it's going nowhere. On another occasion, uh, uh, Jeremiah took a wooden yoke, the kind that a farmer would put on the backs of two oxen to get them to plow the field in unison, to control the oxen. He's walking around with this wooden yoke, and people are wondering, what is this dude doing, you know, walking around with an ox yoke on his back? And he explained to the people, he said, we're living in, in disobedience to God, and if we don't change our ways, God's going to allow a foreign power, an army to come in and carry us off into captivity. We're going to be shackled. We're going to be yoked unless we change our ways. So visual aids, dramas, Okay, on another occasion, Jeremiah goes to the, the market and he buys himself a brand new linen belt. He's got a crowd of people because when Jeremiah goes out on the street, everybody's wondering, what is this dude up to now? So he buys a linen belt and he goes out outside of town and he buries it under a rock. And then a few days later, he comes back and he holds up, he digs up the linen belt and holds it up and it's spoiled. It's good for nothing. It's useless now. He's ruined it. And, and then he tells the people this. This is like some of our lives. I mean, God has made us for a purpose. God's given us a mission, but some of us are useless because we're not walking in obedience to God. So Jeremiah loved to use visual aids, loved to use drama. I get a kick out of this because, you know, in the early days of Christ Community Church, 30 years ago, before every sermon, we did a five-minute drama. So there was a drama that led into the into the sermon, underscoring a major point of the sermon. And we thought we were so cool. We were so hip because no one's ever used drama before. We were cutting edge. Well, Jeremiah beat us to the punch 2,600 years ago. He was using drama to get his messages across. So today's passage, Jeremiah 18 and 19 as well, Jeremiah uses the drama of a potter and his clay. What is the truth he was trying to illustrate? What's well, the truth about God? He's trying to illustrate God's sovereignty. Now, what does sovereignty mean? Well, it means that God is large and in charge, and we're not. God is large and in charge, and we're not. We're not on equal terms with God. God is the creator, and we are his handiwork. God is the potter, we are his clay, which means 
God has the right to do with us what he thinks is best, even though it might not make sense to us. It means that God has the, has the right to do what he thinks is best, even though we think we know better than God what is best for our lives. God is sovereign. And today we're going to take a look at three activities that demonstrate God's sovereignty and then pose the question with each activity, well, what is my response to be? Now, how are we to respond to God's sovereignty? So here's number one. God's sovereignty, as illustrated by a potter in his clay, means that God shapes. God shapes our lives. And the question is, will we yield? Will we yield? So I want you to take a look at the first six verses of Jeremiah 18 with me. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working on the wheel. But the pot he was shaping, there's our shaping word from point one. You could circle it in your Bible. The pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping, there it is again, shaping it as seemed best to him. And then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. God is the potter. We are the clay. He shapes us in ways that seem best to him. Now, sometimes we approve of God's methods of shaping our lives. Okay, when God shapes our lives by giving us certain talents or athletic abilities, when God shapes our lives by giving us educational opportunities or job experiences or influential friendships, we say, yeah, I love the way God's God's shaping my life. But sometimes we object to the methods with which God shapes our lives because he uses a health problem or he uses a mean teacher at school or he uses the death of a loved one or infertility, or a sump pump that backs up, or a rebellious child. And on on those occasions, we're tempted to cry out, what is God doing? What what is God doing? And the answer is, he's doing his job. He's doing his job as a wise, purposeful, expert potter. He's shaping us. God's the potter, we're the clay. Now, somewhat ironically... You know, Jeremiah is boldly preaching this message to others, but in his own life, he was struggling with this truth that God is the potter, I'm the clay. You know, if you follow the Bible-savvy Bible reading schedule, you're going to come across a number of, of passages where Jeremiah complains bitterly about what God is putting him through. What are you doing? You know, how are you shaping my life? Now, in fairness to Jeremiah, he had a pretty tough life. You know, let, let, let's start with his job. If you've read the beginning chapters of Jeremiah, you know in chapter 1, God calls him to be a prophet. And what's Jeremiah's response? He says, ah, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I would rather not. And and in fact, God, I happen to know that prophets, their job is preaching, and I'm not a really good communicator. I'm not good with words. I'm not good in front of people. And remember God's response? God says, on on the one hand, he says, well, first of all, Jeremiah, you need to know I'm going to give you the words. And secondly, you need to know that, that no matter how good a, a communicator you are, the people aren't going to listen anyway. 
That's right, you're going to get no traction, no results. There's going to be uh, no fruit from your labors, Jeremiah. Nothing, nada you can see. How would you like a job like that? God says, I'm going to give you this job, but you're going to be no results from it. You know, what job has God the potter given you? Maybe your job is stressful. Maybe it's discouraging. Maybe you work at something that's boring. You know, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and talk about lack of results. It seems everything you do is undone, right, before the day is out. But God is using your job, whatever your job is, to shape you. God was also shaping Jeremiah in his relationships, Uh, Or if you know the story, I should say his lack of relationships. Uh, For one thing, Jeremiah had no friends. He had an administrative assistant by the name of Baruch. I guess you could say Baruch was a friend of his. But other than that, nobody. He was not a popular guy. He he was like a Chicago Bears fan forced to live in Green Bay, okay? Nobody wanted to hear his message. There, 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 There were no party Evites in his inbox. And and not only did he not have any friends, he he didn't have any family either. In fact, listen to this. God prohibited Jeremiah from getting married and having kids. Why would God be so mean to him? Well, it wasn't mean. God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, good times are over. Bad times are coming. I'm going to punish these people for their disobedience. The next generation is going to be really rough. I want to spare you the heartache of trying to raise a family in that environment. So Jeremiah's job was tough. Jeremiah had no relationships. Jeremiah went through all sorts of hardships. He had a personal nemesis, an enemy by the name of Pasher. Uh, Pasher happened to work security. He was in charge of security at the temple, uh, which was where Jeremiah often went to preach his sermons. And Pasher didn't like Jeremiah. He had him arrested, um, had him beaten, thrown into stocks. Another time, he had him thrown into a dark, dank dungeon. Another time, his enemies took Jeremiah, threw him into an abandoned well. He didn't drown because there was no water, but there was mud at the bottom, and he sank into his chest, and he calls out to him, what are you doing? You're the potter, I'm the clay? Wow. So when Jeremiah preached his God's the potter, we're the clay sermon, I'm sure that he needed that message for himself as much as his listeners did. He needed the reminder that when things are not going well, God is sovereignly shaping me into the person he wants me to be. Listen, some of you need to hear this today. Whatever you're going through, God is sovereignly shaping you into the person he wants you to be. There's an old hymn. Uh, We don't sing it anymore. Uh, But I love the words. They're just hard to sing and really mean. Have your own way, God. You ever heard this one? Have your own way. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Lyrics taken from the story of the potter and the clay. You're the potter, I'm the clay. What's the response of the clay in the words of the song? I'm waiting, yielded and still. Our response to God's sovereignty when he's shaping our lives has to be yieldedness. Now, friends, there are two ways in which you can yield to God. One way is to do so very begrudgingly, very resentfully. You yield to God because what choice do you have? He's bigger and stronger. He's going to get his way. 
So yeah, I'm yielding, but you're not too happy about it. When I was a junior in college, I was working out with the wrestling team. And I was not a wrestler myself, but I had buddies on the team. And so as they were getting ready for winter wrestling season in the fall, I was running with them and lifting weights with them. And uh, the coach of the wrestling team came up to me one day, Coach Pete, and he said, Hey, Nicodem, why don't you try out for wrestling? He said, You know, you're in good shape. You'd enjoy it. And I said, Coach, I'm 20 years old and I've never wrestled a day in my life. I would be wrestling against guys who've been wrestling since they were old enough to walk. No, I don't think so. And so he finally convinced me to try it. Just come to one day of practice. So I came to the first day of practice. And he said, hey, we're going to warm up with a, a takedown drill, pair up, okay? And so for the next few minutes, you were supposed to take down your, your partner, get him to, to the mat. Well, about a second and a half later, I had been tied up into a pretzel, and uh, my partner was shoving my nose into the mat. I was yielding. I was yielding, but I wasn't happy about it. Okay, some of us, that, that's the perspective we have of God as he puts us through difficult circumstances. I'm yielding, but I can't believe you're doing this to my life. You know, God's a potter? No, God's not a potter. God's a bully who gets his way. Now, you wouldn't say that out loud. But sometimes we're tempted to think that, are we not? God is a bully. What he's putting me through, he's heartless. He doesn't care. Now, the other kind of yielding is to trust the potter. The other kind of yielding is to believe that the potter is up to something good in our lives. The other sort of yielding is to say, God, from this experience, I want to become better, not bitter. And so we yield to his shaping. Now, it's interesting to note that the word yield which often means to submit to, to surrender to, to give in to. It can also mean to produce fruit. Like, like, like when we say of a, a vineyard that the vineyard yielded a certain number of bushels of grapes. So let me switch the metaphor here for a moment. Instead of talking about clay yielding to the hand of the potter, let's talk about grapes yielding to the hand of the gardener. Okay, because th th this is Jesus' metaphor in John 15. J Jesus says, I'm the main vine. I'm the main grapevine. And if you're a follower of mine, if you've surrendered to me, your branches, your job is to produce fruit. And Now, what role does God the Father have in all this, this metaphor? Who's God the Father in this picture? Hey, he's the gardener. He's the guy, Jesus says in John 15, with the pruning shears cutting back the branches. You say, oh, whoa, that means he's cutting back. I'm the branch, right? So it might hurt, yes. But God, the gardener, has a wonderful goal in mind, Jesus says. He wants our lives to be even more fruitful. He wants our lives to yield godly character and to yield greater accomplishments and to yield richer blessings. Do we believe that? Do we, we believe that when God the gardener prunes us? Do we believe that when God the potter shapes us? Do we believe that God has our best in mind? I was, was meeting with my accountability partner uh, this past week. We get together every other week for about an hour and a half over lunch, and uh, we drill down into each other's lives. We ask tough questions about how's your marriage going, and you know, are you walking in moral purity? Are you putting anything in front of your eyes you shouldn't be? You know? how, how are the stressors at work? Uh, how's your relationship with God? And so, At the end of our time together, we then pray for each other. 
And so my uh, partner was asking me to pray for him and his family, and we got to talking about his son, his fourth child, a teenage son, and he was reminiscing. He said, you know, we had three kids, and we wanted a fourth, but then we had three miscarriages, and I was so painful, such a dark time. But then we, we had this fourth son, and he said, you know, it's occurred to me that if any of those miscarriages had turned out to be a baby, we, we would have stopped having kids at that point, and I would have missed out on the enjoyment of raising this fourth child who is such a delight to us. Now, now, please understand, my friend was not saying to me that the pain wasn't really pain. It was painful, and probably a pain that he and his wife will, will live with their entire lives. And, and he wasn't saying that, you know, God owes it to me to show me what he's up to every time he puts me through something difficult. No, he was just saying, hey, on this occasion, I got a glimpse of what God was up to, and it allowed me to see that God is always up to my good, that God is always working everything together for my good, that God the gardener loves me, God the potter loves me. You get it? Good. Number two. What is this potter and clay illustration? What does it tell us about God's sovereignty? Number two, God remakes, will we repent? Okay, so this visual aid, first it teaches God shapes, will we yield? Secondly, God remakes, will we repent? Let me reread verse four to you. Okay, it says, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. Circle the word marred. I'll give you some synonyms in just a moment. This, this is a key word. The clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot. Okay, he remade it, shaping it as seemed best to him. So the pot was, was marred. Now, it's not a word we use all the time, so I used my thesaurus on my laptop, and I came up with, and you could put this in the margin, ruined, damaged, wrecked. Okay, there, there, there was some defect in the clay. Maybe it was air bubbles, <laughs> or, or maybe it was little bits of stone or stick, or, or maybe the clay was just too dry, and so it, it was brittle, it was cracking. So if we're the clay, in this analogy, if we're the clay, that means that we can mess up what God the potter is doing in our lives. Now, how do we do that? Well, the Bible calls it sinning. And there are countless ways that we can sin. We can gossip. We can lust. We, we, we can give ourselves to materialism, you know, accruing more and more and more. We could give in to self-centeredness or cheating or sex outside of marriage or discrimination or angry words, outbursts, or making gods out of things that are not God in our lives. I mean, the, the list is endless. There are a bazillion ways to mar the clay, to mess up what God the potter wants to make of our lives. Now, the good news is that the potter is willing to, to remake us when we've messed up. The challenge is we got to be willing to repent. As often as we mar the clay, we got to be willing to repent. Now, back, back to Jeremiah 18. Drop down to verse 7. If at any time, God says, I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. In other words, the people are marred, so we've got to remake something here. And if that nation, I warned, repents, 
repents of the evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Now, if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and to be planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do for it. Now, therefore, go to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem. Say, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways. Repent. Okay, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We'll continue with our own plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. So the potter is willing to remake us every time we mess up, every time we mar, mar the clay, but we've got to be willing to repent as often as necessary. Now, what does repentance look, look like? Well, let me say that it's more than just a cavalier, sorry, God. I want to give you two characteristics of repentance. This is genuine repentance. And the first one comes from a New Testament passage. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, I want you to put your finger in Jeremiah 18 and flip over to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7, I'm going to give you the first characteristic of genuine repentance from this passage. First, I've got to give you the background to 2 Corinthians 7. Okay, 2 Corinthians is called 2 Corinthians because, you guessed it, there is a 1 Corinthians, a prior letter that Paul had written. And in the prior letter, he had taken them to task for certain sins. He had gotten in their face about a bunch of stuff they were doing that was marring the clay. So Paul wasn't trying to be judgmental. In, in love, he was saying, guys, God wants to do a wonderful work in your life, but you're wrecking it. Okay, come clean, repent. And, and so Paul writes to them, and I won't go into detail about everything he confronted them about. Uh, you know, he covered everything from relational conflicts to, uh, to uh, lawsuits. They were suing the pants off each other, to sexual immorality, to uh, egotism, uh, egotism, egoism whatever it is, uh, self-centeredness, okay? And, and so he cataloged their sins and he sent off this letter and then he waited. He waited to see how they would respond. W would they write back and say, hey, Paul, bug off? <laughs> or, or would they repent? Well, Paul got word through the grapevine that they had taken what he'd written to heart and they'd repented. They'd changed their ways. And so he's writing them now, 2 Corinthians, to say, way to go. And, and in the paragraph I'm about to read to you, he remarks on a characteristic of repentance that lets him know their repentance is genuine. It's the real deal. Here's the characteristic. I'm going to tell you ahead of time so you could look for it as I read this to you. Sorrow. Sorrow. Okay. Really being sad over our sins. That's the mark of genuine repentance in this passage. Pick it up, 2 Corinthians 7 at verse 8. Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow by my previous letter, I don't regret it. Oh, I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry in a superficial sort of way, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see how many times he says sorrow, sorrowful. What's a mark of genuine repentance? When we're truly sad about our sins. 
You know, when, when we stop ignoring them or saying, well, they're not a big deal. You know, my, my sins are pretty small. We stop blaming them on other people. Well, I sinned because I didn't do what's, what's right because. And we just get sad over it. Now, now, Paul says there are two kinds of sorrow. You could have worldly sorrow or you could have godly sorrow. You see that in the passage? What's worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow is being sorry for the wrong reasons. We've all been there. Yeah. Some of the wrong reasons are like, we're sorry because we got caught. We're not sorry because of our sin. We're sorry because we got caught in our sin. So there, there's a guy whose wife has looked at the search history on his computer and found that he's been looking at pornography. And so she confronts him, and he's sorry. Now, he's not sorry that he's been damaging his moral character with porn, not to mention his marriage. What he's sorry about is he got caught. He'd still be watching the porn if she hadn't caught him. It's the wrong kind of, of sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Or, or another instance of worldly sorrow is when, when we're sorry over consequences. Okay, we got ourselves in a mess because of our sin. So I gossip against a friend, and the friend hears that I've been talking about him behind his back, and he says, that's it for our friendship, and I'm sorry. Now, I'm not sorry that I've ruined my friend's reputation. I'm sorry that I lost a good bud to hang out with. I'm sorry because of the mess I created, the consequences. That's worldly sorrow, Paul would say. What's godly? Godly sorrow is being sorry for the right reasons. Like what? Being sorrowful because we recognize that God the potter has been up to something wonderful in my life and I've messed it up. He's trying to make something out of this lump of clay that's me. And I'm resisting, I'm fighting, I'm doing stupid stuff. And so I come before him as I repent and I say, oh God, I'm so sorry that I've ruined your work in my life. Remake me, remake me. Godly sorrow is sorrow for the right reasons. It's sorry for the fact that my sin sent Christ to the cross. God just couldn't wave a magic wand over my sin and make it go away because God is a just, he's a righteous, he's a holy God. My sin had to be atoned for. It had to be paid for. Jesus came to the planet to pay the penalty for my sin. So when I'm confessing my sin to him, when I'm repenting, I'm saying, oh Jesus, I'm so sorry that my sin sent you to the cross. That's godly sorrow. That's the first characteristic of two I want to give you that leads to repentance, genuine repentance. Here's the second characteristic of genuine repentance. And this one takes us back to Jeremiah 18. Change. Change. Look again at the middle of verse 11. God says to the people, so turn. Turn, 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 turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Did you know that the literal meaning of the word repent is to do a 180 degree turn? It's what the word repent means. It means to do an about face. You know, we're headed in the wrong direction. Our sins are taking us further and further away from God. And so we turn around, we do an about face, and we, we start heading in the right direction. We start heading toward God instead of away from him. So, so let's say that you're, you're convicted of the fact that you hate your boss. You're not looking forward to going to work tomorrow because you can't stand the guy. And so God brings it to mind and you say, I got to repent. I got to stop talking about my boss behind his back. I need to turn. I need to start praying for my boss. I need to start asking God's blessing on his life. That's repenting. 
Let's say you have to repent for abusing food and you say, well, I've been moving in this direction of consistently overeating. I've got to stop. I've got to turn. I've got to start eating healthy food. I've got to start eating food in moderation. I've got to stop making food my God. That's repenting. Or let's say you're convicted that materialism is a big deal for you, getting stuff, buying stuff. And you say, okay, I'm moving in this direction. I got to stop making a hobby out of shopping, okay? I got to stop spending all my paycheck on myself. I got to turn. I got to repent. I got to start giving money to the Lord's work, being a generous person, just the opposite direction. You following this? You're convicted of sexual immorality. I've been sleeping with my girlfriend, and I've got to stop doing this, and I've got to move in a, a new direction. I need moral boundaries on physical affection that I demonstrate in my dating relationships. See, it's a whole new ball game. I've been going in the, in the wrong direction with respect to acknowledging God in my daily life. I kind of zone out. I forget about God between weekends. And so I got to stop spending all that time on social media. And I got to start taking some of that chill time and drill down into God's word, become a Bible reader. See, change. You, you've not repented, friend. You've not repented until there's a willingness to change, until you come before Almighty God and you say, I'm tired of going that way, I want to go this way. And you appeal to God's Spirit and you say, I can't do this on my own, I need your power to make this change. You do. We're going to be talking about that next weekend, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Besides the Holy Spirit, you may may need to find an accountability partner. You may need to carve out some daily prayer time, 10 minutes a day, where you review your previous 24 hours and you say, Holy Spirit of God, put your finger on anything in my life that needs to be repented of. You may need to apologize to people that you've offended. You may need to develop new disciplines or to check out care night or to make an appointment with a Christian counselor in order to make real change. God will remake us if we will repent, but let me tell you, God is not fooled by phony repentance. God is not fooled by phony repentance, by a cavalier, oh, sorry. You know, God is looking for the real thing, repenting that's marked by godly sorrow and by an earnestness to change. Sorrow and change. Get it? Good. Number three. What is God the potter and us the clay, that that visual aid, what does it teach us about God's sovereignty and our response? Only have time to briefly touch on this third point, then we'll wrap it up. Number three, God destroys. Whoa, God destroys. Will we perish? Now, we've been looking at Jeremiah 18, but for this last point, we're going to jump ahead to Jeremiah 19, because Jeremiah makes a second trip to the potter's workshop. There's one more lesson that God wants Jeremiah to teach the people with the help of a pottery visual aid. So let me begin at verse 1 of chapter 19. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from the potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnon near the entrance of the potsherd gate and there proclaim the words I tell you and say hear the word of the Lord you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem this is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says listen I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle for they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods 
stop there. I could summarize the next few verses. He catalogs some of their sins, some of their, their wanderings from God. And then he tells Jeremiah to take this clay pot and go to the valley of Ben-Hinnon. Drop down to verse 10. And then break the jar. Break the jar while those who go with you are watching. And say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. Cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Now, just a little historical background here. The uh, Valley of Ben-Hinnon was on the south side of the ancient city of Jerusalem, still there today. Uh, in the years before Jeremiah, it was a place where uh, people would, would sneak off and worship foreign gods, pagan gods. And God hated that practice. So a good king by the name of Josiah came along, a reformer king, and he put an end to it. And instead, the valley of Ben-Hinnon became the city's garbage dump. That's where all the garbage went out the south gate of the city and was dumped in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. And it was burned. Piles of refuse were constantly burning there. And so by Jeremiah's day, the valley of Ben-Hinnon had become a metaphor for hell. Okay, this is the place of eternal condemnation, judgment. So Jeremiah takes a clay jar, symbolic of people's lives. People who refuse to repent. People who say, I, you know, I don't want to surrender to Christ. And he takes that jar and boom, he, he smacks it and it, it perishes. He's illustrating eternal judgment. Now, I think God has something better in store for you than that. You know, God's intention is not that you cling to your sins to the bitter end and then you face God in judgment. Because we will. Uh, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, it's appointed unto humans once to die and after that to face judgment. And we will either bear the penalty of sin ourselves, or we will find some substitute who's willing to take our place. And that would be Jesus. You know, the mo most familiar verse in scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, the word believe, by the way, is a, a robust word. It doesn't mean you just agree with certain factoids about Jesus in your head. But believe means to trust fully. It means to surrender your life to him. Whoever believes in him shall not, what? Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Because Jesus, in a sense, he took the penalty our sins deserve. We deserve to be smashed, as it were, because of our, our refusal to repent, because of our hard-heartedness, our sinfulness. And Jesus took all that on the cross. He was the jar smashed for us, if you would. And now if you'll surrender your life to him, the risen Christ will forgive your sin. And he'll give you new life. You know, I, I love to read John 3.16 with my name inserted. Have you ever done that? You know, for God so loved... Jim, that he gave his one and only son, that if Jim believes, surrenders to him, he shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever put your name in that verse? If you surrender to Jesus, if you've never done so before today and you do it today, this verse will be true of you. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing a, a closing song. But bow your heads with me across our four campuses. 
you've heard me say before if you've been here that surrender, you know, the ABCs of surrender go like this. If you've never surrendered, you don't want to be that smashed jar. You don't want to be the, the, the person destined to the valley of Ben-Hinnon. So surrender your life to Christ. ABC. A stands for acknowledge. You've got to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Stop excusing. Stop blaming other people. Stop diminishing your sins and say, saying, well, they're not as big a deal as somebody else's sins. And say, no, my sins have separated me from a holy God. Acknowledge your sins today. The B of the ABCs, A is acknowledge, B is believe. Surrender to Jesus. Put your whole trust, believe in him fully with your life. Say, I understand that you're the savior of the world, but I want you to be my savior. Ask him to be your savior. Ask him to come in and to cleanse you and to remake you. If you'll repent of your sins, he will remake you. That's what we learned from the potter and the clay. And the C stands for commit. Remember what we said about true repentance is marked by change? Commit to following Jesus. Say, I, I want to learn what it means to follow you. I want to under, understand what your word. I've never been much of a Bible reader, but I want to understand what the Bible says to my life so I could follow you wholeheartedly and bring about the changes in my life that you want to see. Commit. If you've never surrendered to Jesus, acknowledge, believe, commit. If you've surrendered to Jesus, but you recognize, you know, repentance has not been a regular habit in my life. I let sin build up for a while before I get real honest with God and say, oh God, I'm so sorry. Oh God, help me change. And if that's you today, say, God, I want to make a habit of repenting daily. And right now, God, there's junk in my life I want to say no to. I want to do an about face. You know what that is. Give it to God right now and say, I want to leave this with you and I want you to remake me. God, thank you for the promise of what you will do in our lives as our, as our potter if we're willing to be the clay. We pray all this in Jesus' name.